Hello, everyone. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and this is Last Week in the Church. It is a show rigorously, faithfully, and ineradicably devoted to telling you things about the Vatican and the Catholic Church you already know. Uh, here's what we've got uh, on this week's menu. Hold the phone! Top aide to the U.S. bishops quits amid revelations that he was using the Grinder Gay Hookup app. The episode has also triggered an ethical debate about this kind of scoop. Uh, Pope Francis gets a key assist on the Latin Mass. Uh, the latest on the wafer wars, that is, debates about whether pro-choice Catholic politicians should be denied the Eucharist at Mass. Uh, then we dip into the wonderful world of uh, U.S. Vatican relations and how water is emerging as a potential new focus. Finally, here come to judge the Vatican's bombshell corruption trial gets started tomorrow. That's what we've got for you on the other side, so please stick around. We begin this week with the unfolding saga of Monsignor Jeffrey Burrell. Heretofore, the Secretary General of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, basically its chief of staff, uh, and if you never heard this guy's name before, don't feel bad. I would hazard that 99.9% of Catholics on the face of the planet would tell you the same thing. Uh, now, uh, what happened over the last week uh, is that an upstart Catholic news organization called Pillar, founded by a couple of former editors of the Catholic News Agency, ran an expose uh, in which they reported that some anonymous figure, whom they did not identify, uh, provided them with data from Burl, Burl's cell phone, uh, suggesting that he was a regular user of the Grinder Gay Hookup app, and that geolocation data from his phone placed him at gay bars, bathhouses, private residences of single males, uh, basically a series of salacious venues. Uh, and in the wake of that, uh, the president of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, Archbishop Jose Gomez of Los Angeles, and therefore Burl's boss, released a statement indicating that Burl was resigning to avoid being a distraction. Uh, now, uh, important to emphasize a couple of points. One, uh, the data published by Pillar uh, is, is certainly suggestive. Um, I mean, if you see a pattern of a Catholic priest using a gay hookup app and showing up at gay venues, it's, it's worrying, uh, but it is not conclusive. Uh, the report did not actually provide any evidence of misconduct uh, on Burl's part, merely that he was using technology and being in places where misconduct certainly is possible. Uh, second thing to say uh, is that although Pillar indicated that they had independently confirmed this data, they didn't tell us how. Uh, we don't know where this information came from or what the agenda may be uh, of the person providing it. 
now, the, the next shoe dropped over the weekend uh, in that Pillar published another article indicating that they had informed the Archdiocese of Newark that they have information suggesting that hookup apps, either gay or straight, have been used at at least 10 different clerical residences in the Archdiocese of Newark. So that's rectories, uh, homes for priests, uh, and so on. Uh, and the Archdiocese of Newark, in response, has indicated that they are going to be looking into this, saying it is always worrying when there is a suggestion that a priest is not maintaining his vows. Uh, but on the other hand, they also expressed a degree of skepticism about the legitimacy uh, of this data and the reasons for disclosing it. We will see how all of that plays out. Worth saying that the Archdiocese of Newark is led by Cardinal Joseph Tobin, who is seen as one of the liberals uh, in the U.S. hierarchy, a staunch ally of Pope Francis. Uh, the two guys who founded Pillar would be conventionally seen as conservatives, uh, and therefore this is leading some to believe uh, that politics uh, may be behind all of this. That is, that the ultimate aim uh, is not only to get all gays out of the priesthood, but also to weaken and delegitimize some liberal bishops along the way. Um, now, uh, this episode. Uh, has triggered an avalanche of debate. Uh, some of it uh, is about how someone could have been appointed secretary general to the U.S. Bishops' Conference while apparently, or at least plausibly, uh, leading this kind of double life. Uh, other aspects of it have to do with the journalistic ethics of all of that. That is, is a secretary general of the U.S. bishops a big enough public figure to justify this kind of invasion of privacy? And does a news organization have an obligation not simply to report the smoke, but the fire? That is, should Pillar have waited until they had actual confirmation that Burl had done something wrong, not merely been in dubious places, before they bespurched his reputation like this? Uh, that debate is going to play out. Uh, I can tell you, and, and I have written, that I would not have reported this story based upon the information that was in the original uh, Pillar account. I would have wanted to wait for more solid confirmation. This may be in part because experience tells me that a Secretary General of the U.S. Bishops' Conference does not, and I repeat, does not, have his finger on any button. It, it, it's a glorified clerical position. I mean, it's, it's like being the secretary to a corporate vice president. You're not setting policy. You're not making decisions. I mean, basically, you're making photocopies and calling roll. Uh, and so to destroy this guy's reputation, in my view, requires a higher evidentiary standard. But maybe that's just me. Uh, all right, Pope Francis gets an assist on the Latin Mass. You will recall we discussed last week Pope Francis's controversial new decree basically rolling back all of the permissions the Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI gave for wider celebration of the Latin Mass in 2007. Now, this has triggered a firestorm of controversy. 
all the people who were passionately devoted to the Latin Mass, and look, I mean, they are a very small minority of the, of the overall Catholic universe, uh, but they're extraordinarily passionate and they're extraordinarily vocal. Those folks have been extremely critical. More broadly, uh, people who already were dubious about Pope Francis thinking that he was basically a liberal, cramming a liberal agenda down the church's throat, uh, this certainly has done nothing to disabuse them uh, of those impressions. But uh, in recent days, Pope Francis got an assist on this front from a source who has impeccable street cred uh, in the conservative Catholic world. That's Archbishop Augustine de Noia, uh, who is currently an American. He's, he's actually from the Bronx. Uh, he is currently an adjunct secretary in the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, but at one earlier stage of his career, uh, he was the guy charged by Pope Benedict with conducting negotiations with the traditionalists to try to sort of bring them back in the fold. So not only does Denoya know the subject, but as I say, uh, he has uh, unquestioned esteem in the conservative Catholic world. He was a key aide to then Cardinal Ratzinger at the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith before he became Pope Benedict. Uh, he's been part of the, he's been a, a sort of point of reference uh, on the English-speaking conservative Catholic landscape for quite a while. So he gave an interview to the Catholic News Service uh, in which he was asked about this decision by Pope Francis. Uh, and in essence, Denoya defended it strenuously uh, and insisted that what Popes John Paul II and Benedict XVI wanted to do by giving progressively greater openings to the Latin mass crowd was to promote unity in the church. If, if they had what they wanted, the theory went, uh, then uh, they would no longer be divisive and angry. But Denoya says, in reality, what has happened is that the Latin mass crowd has become a church within a church. You have these people running around promoting the old Latin mass uh, as the only true form uh, of Catholic worship, creating their own communities and subcultures around it, uh, and in Denoya's view, absolutely contradicting the purpose for which St. John Paul and Pope Emeritus Benedict gave these permissions in the first place. Now, you can agree with that or not. Obviously, it's debatable, but I think it is significant that somebody who was unquestionably a Ratzinger loyalist, arguably the English language cleric who was most indispensable to Joseph Ratzinger when he was at the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, uh, is saying all of this and therefore lending obvious legitimacy uh, to Pope Francis's decision. We, we will see where this goes from here. Uh, it will be interesting to see whether some, at least, uh, of the Latin Mass devotees peel off uh, and start participating uh, in the ordinary form, that is, the, the Mass as it's celebrated in the vast majority of Catholic parishes every Sunday, in the United States, at least, which has by far the largest number of Latin Mass communities in the world, most bishops so far have said those communities can continue for the time being, that is, the status quo will continue for the time being, 
while they study implementation of Pope Francis's ruling. We will, of course, track all of that on the Crux site. All right, the latest on the wafer wars, that is this debate about whether pro-choice Catholic politicians ought to be able to get communion. This, of course, has been around for a long time in the American church. It burst into public view in 2004 with the John Kerry campaign. Uh, and it has returned with a vengeance uh, with the election of Joe Biden as the second Roman Catholic commander-in-chief of the United States and, of course, a commander-in-chief who supports abortion rights. He is, an, in effect, pro-choice. Uh, now, uh, there have been some bishops who uh, have publicly said that they believe that ought to disqualify Biden and fellow pro-choice Catholic politicians, such as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, from receiving communion at Mass. Others uh, think that amounts to weaponizing communion. It's a bad idea, uh, and think that disagreements about abortion ought to be addressed in other arenas. Recently, an auxiliary bishop from the Archdiocese of Boston wrote a piece over the weekend making precisely that case. Now, uh, again, this is one of those think-what-you-will situations, uh, but the latest development is uh, recently House Speaker Pelosi was giving a talk uh, in which she addressed her support for abortion rights. And basically what she said was that I am a devout Catholic, but as a policymaker, uh, it's not my role to impose those values on anyone else. It's my role to do what's right in a pluralistic democratic society. And that basically is the pro-choice Catholic politician line since time immemorial, right? I am personally opposed to abortion, but I can't impose that on anyone else. Uh, now, uh, in the wake of Pelosi giving this interview, her own archbishop, Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione uh, of San Francisco, uh, put out a statement in which he said, basically, Pelosi is not a devout Catholic, and she has no right to call herself a devout Catholic uh, as long as she upholds the pro-choice position, that is, the legal right to an abortion. Cordiglione would be one of the, the core of American bishops pushing this idea of a communion ban most aggressively. I suppose, if anything, this latest episode is an indication that none of the debate and backlash and controversy that has swirled around it so far has convinced Cordiglione to change his stripes. Where things stand uh, is that the U.S. bishops have approved the crafting of a document on, uh, on the, the, the Eucharist, which may include a subsection on conditions for worthy reception of communion. Uh, that document is supposed to be put before them in November. Uh, what this would suggest is that Cordoglione, at least, uh, and people who take their cues from him, uh, will be pushing for the strongest possible language uh, when it comes to abortion, the pro-choice position, and communion. We will see how it shakes out. Finally, this week, well, not really finally, actually, a quick note about U.S.-Vatican relations uh, before we get to the final part. Um, you know, usually we talk about U.S.-Vatican relations only when things break down. 
right? During the Clinton administration, we talked about these titanic conflicts over abortion at the UN conferences in Cairo and Beijing on reproduction and on women. Uh, during the Bush administration, we talked about this huge conflict between the Vatican and the White House over the war in Iraq. Uh, during the Obama years, you know, we talked about uh, the conflict between the U.S. bishops and to some extent the Vatican over abortion. And recently, of course, we've been focusing on Biden uh, and the question of whether he ought to be able to get communion. By the way, a debate that the Vatican has basically stayed out of. So this is mostly a thing with the U.S. bishops, but nevertheless, there is an obvious Vatican angle. In other words, we talk about U.S.-Vatican relations when something goes wrong. It's like the air traffic control system. You don't talk about it when the plane lands safely. It only comes up when the plane crashes, right? The thing is, that is a distortion of the full picture, because the full picture is, for decades, often at low levels in kind of micro ways, the U.S., and the Vatican and Catholic uh, organizations, such as religious orders and Catholic movements, have been collaborating positively, constructively, happily, without incident, on a variety of different fronts, whether it's human trafficking or poverty relief or anti-hunger campaigns or what have you. It goes on all of the time, and in small, uncelebrated ways, it contributes to making the world a better place. Now, the most recent example of this is the possibility of a new partnership between the U.S. and the Vatican and Catholic organizations on water. That may seem decidedly unsexy to you, the subject of water, but bear in mind that there are 2.2 billion people in this world who do not have access, regular access, to safe drinking water. More than half the world's population doesn't have access to safe sanitation. Some uh, 700 children around the world die every day from water diseases, uh, diseases related to access to safe water. Uh, there are 673 billion people in the world who practice open defecation because they don't have access to toilets. And all of this takes a massive health toll. Uh, now, development experts believe that addressing some of these water problems uh, is one of the lowest cost fixes uh, on the development menu. I mean, if you want to go into an isolated rural community, one way to improve public health would be to build a hospital that is expensive and time-consuming, and you've got to come up with the personnel to staff it. Another way would be to put in public toilets. They are cheap. They are easy to maintain. They are easy to supply. Uh, and yet, the health benefits uh, down the line in, in terms of presenting these preventing rather these water-related diseases uh, are staggering. You could essentially uh, put a dent, a significant dent, in the global incidence of diphtheria, diarrhea, malaria. Uh, that, that have, uh, that the death toll from which every year uh, is stunning. I mean, that, those 700 kids who die every year, every day, rather, from these diseases, you could probably cut it in half simply by putting in safe public toilets with regular access uh, so that uh, everybody on the planet had regular access to those facilities. Uh, it's cheap, it's relatively easy to do, it's non-controversial, and now, the U.S. government, in the form of the Center for 
Uh, Faith-based and neighborhood partnerships led by its new director, Adam Phillips, who was here in Rome this week. They are talking with Vatican officials about ways to be able to do that up, do that at scale. Uh, if it happens, you know, it's probably not going to be a cause celeb. But I guarantee you there will be a lot of people around the world who aren't sick and whose lives are better and safer because of it. That's part of the story of U.S.-Vatican relations, too. Finally, the Vatican's bombshell corruption trial kicks off tomorrow, Tuesday, July 27th, the first hearing uh, in the process against Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu, Pope Francis's former chief of staff, nine other individuals, and three corporate entities, all of whom are basically accused of ripping the Vatican off uh, in different ways. Various counts of embezzlement, misappropriation, and so on. It is the first time a Roman Catholic cardinal has been charged with a crime under the laws of the Vatican city-state, and it's the first time he has been put on trial. Uh, other, other defendants in this process include Swiss lawyer René Bruhlhardt, former director of the Vatican's financial watchdog unit, uh, and a guy who was brought in uh, under Pope Benedict as sort of Mr. Clean Hands. Also in the dock, a couple of shady, or at least apparently shady, Italian financiers uh, accused of overcharging the Vatican and bilking it uh, and getting it in bed with, you know, dubious characters. Uh, now, uh, tomorrow's hearing is likely to be largely procedural. Uh, the bill of indictment in this case included a 500-page document from Vatican prosecutors laying out the charges, uh, and then more than 20,000 pages uh, of supporting documents. In the version given to defense attorneys, some of those documents are basically illegible. You can't really read them. Uh, they don't come in any particular order. There's no particular index. It's, it's hard to determine what's relevant to the prosecution and what isn't. So, there may be some wrangling tomorrow uh, about trying to get a cleaner and better organized version uh, of the actual charges uh, at stake in this case. Uh, there will probably also be arguments about scheduling. Some of the defense attorneys may make a motion to separate uh, the trials, that is to allow their defend defendants to stand on their own. Uh, all of this is likely to be put before the Vatican court tomorrow. Unlikely, probably, that they're going to rule on much of it. Uh, and probably the conclusion is going to be, we're going to need some time uh, to sort out all of this. So the expectation uh, is that the proceedings will be adjourned probably until September, conveniently uh, and not coincidentally. That means everybody involved in this process can still take their traditional Ferragosto, that is mid-August vacations, where every Roman, and I do mean virtually every Roman, heads for the beaches or the mountains or both. This city next month, particularly towards the middle, I swear to you, you'll walk around and you will think you are on a scene, you're in a scene from like The Walking Dead. Uh, because it is basically empty. Uh, maybe the better analogy would be to that Will Smith movie where he wakes up and he's the only guy alive or something. But, but anyway, 
uh, you would think it is, you know, a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Uh, and the smart money is that they'll, that will also include the lawyers and judges and journos who have to cover all of this. Uh, now, what is at stake here, ultimately, uh, is the credibility of Pope Francis's financial reform. Because this trial has been billed as the ultimate proof that the reform is working and that even a cardinal is not above the law. On the other hand, Beichu's defenders will tell you he's a patsy. He's a fall guy, uh, and that just as guilty, if anybody is guilty here, based upon the documentary evidence, uh, would be the Cardinal Secretary of State, Cardinal Pietro Parolin, uh, and uh, the new P papal chief of staff, Beichu's successor, a Venezuelan Archbishop Edgar Peña Parra, because their signatures are in all the documents approving all of these transactions. Uh, and so that Beichu is being served up as a convenient fall guy, somebody the Pope had already decided to kick to the curb, therefore it doesn't cost him anything, whereas his guys are being insulated from liability uh, and from prosecution. Uh, and so the evidence is going to have to support that Beichu was uniquely guilty and that Paterlin and Peña Parra weren't. Uh, and depending on how this breaks, historical judgments about whether this was a real reform or a classic case of what the Italians call una reforma gata pardesca, which means a reform in which everything on the surface changes so that everything underneath can stay the same, that judgment will depend in part on the outcome of this trial we, of course, will have eyes on it at all times on the Crux site. All right, that's our show for this week. You can find full coverage of everything we've talked about on the Crux site, cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com. Also, want to remind you, if you like Last Week in the Church, uh, please give us a like, give us a thumbs up, give us a retweet. Go on the social media platform of your choice and make disciples of all the nations. We need the help to get this show in front of as many eyeballs as possible. And once we do that, good things happen. We will be back here next Monday, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week. We will talk to you again soon.